Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the way that you sent your very son, the word of God, with the very authority of heaven to speak to us so that even we who are unworthy could come under your good authority and rule. Uh, thank you for the way your word left to us in the Bible illuminates all areas of our life. And thank you for the way you even use it to give us the strength we need to be faithful to you until the day you call us home. Uh, we pray now that we'd open our ears and our hearts to receive the word implanted and to find ourselves humbled before your good authority, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I had a long commute back and forth to seminary for about four years. And for one stretch, there was a big billboard on the way with the words, bald is back on it. Uh, as striking as those words were, was a very large face with a absolutely hairless head of an actor by the name of Sir Patrick Stewart. Um, you may know Patrick Stewart from a variety of roles. Uh, this particular advertisement, though, was from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, Card-carrying Trekkie over here. It's okay to admit it. Um, Patrick Stewart played a Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, he was captain of the USS Enterprise, uh, a man with a lot of authority, but a man that was worth trusting. Uh, again and again, he showed himself to be a capable, even a... Um, a patient and wise leader. And as a result, his crew trusted him implicitly, so much so that his catchphrase was actually an expression of his effortless authority. There would be something or the other needed to be done, sending the starship from one side of the galaxy to the other. He would give the command, and then he would say his line, make it so, and off they would go. Just a word was all that's needed to get the his crew to uh, move into motion. Now, we live in a day where I doubt that if they made that series again, that Patrick Stewart would be a very popular character because we're living at a moment where authority is widely challenged and there's lots of skepticism about anyone exercising any sort of authority where we might have to humble ourselves and submit to it. But that's a mistake to make, societally, certainly, but it's an even bigger mistake to make spiritually. Because as Luke 7 shows us, the very, the very first step of faith is in fact humility to the authority of Jesus. Uh, we've entered a new section in Luke's gospel, one that's gonna focus on snapshots of faith being found in very odd places and the very authority of Jesus himself. Uh, this morning, we're gonna see a story of a very powerful man with a suffering uh, slave that he wants very desperately to be healed. In the course of the story, we'll learn that we need to be humble and trust the authority of our Lord Jesus as he did. Uh, we'll see that in two sections as we move through the story. First, in one through six, we'll see that faith in Jesus requires humility. Faith in Jesus requires humility. Second, in seven through 10, We'll see that faith in Jesus trusts his authority. Faith in Jesus trusts his authority. And to us, I hope my takeaway for all of us this morning, to in humility, trust his authority. To look to Jesus with eyes of faith. Let's begin that first section, one through six. Faith in Jesus 
requires humility. Uh, Verse 1 tips us off that we're in a new section of Luke's gospel. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum. Um, Over summer, we've been studying that section in Luke 6 called the Sermon on the Plain. It's a long sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples. That is now over, and we are now shifting to somewhere new. Something new is happening. Jesus and his disciples are going back to their home base of ministry, Capernaum, the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And while they're there, there is an issue. Verse 2 introduces it. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued to him. Uh, The setting is Jesus in the same location as a very powerful man with a very big problem. He had a slave. The the text here translates it as servant. I think that's probably to avoid the baggage that slavery in the United States has. But slavery back then meant something different. Uh, Slaves could be highly educated and have very, very important positions in society, even as they were still under the authority of their master. This particular slave, it seems, was very valuable, and that means there'd be a very big problem if the master were to lose him to death. His master was a man who was used to getting his way. We're told he's a centurion. Uh, That tells us a couple of things. One, he's not Jewish. He's a, a Gentile. It also tells us he is a Roman soldier. Um, Centurions were the class of soldiers that had a hundred soldiers underneath them. And that means he was a very powerful person indeed. So that's the problem. A very powerful guy with a very big problem. A seriously sick slave that's on the verge of death. Well, that brings us to the action in the story, starting in verse 3. The first surprise, uh, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, it's not usual for a Roman soldier, when he has a problem, to go looking for a Jewish rabbi to solve it. That's the first very strange thing about this story. But there's a second thing. Notice the people he sends as a delegation to Jesus. We're told he sends the elders of the Jews. Uh, Now, centurions had broad authority. The people under their command certainly would do what they said if they knew what was good for them. But Jew-Gentile relations were not good. Uh, Certainly, you would not expect Jewish leaders, the upper crust of their society, to be doing favors for their Roman occupiers. And yet, this centurion has enough power and enough influence then he, he could even send the elders of the Jews. Maybe those are the people in charge of the local synagogue. Probably it's the people in charge of the local town. Uh, think of him as sending the top tier of local leadership as his errand boys. So these Jewish elders show up to Jesus and they bring the request of the one who sent them. Look with me in verse five. I'm sorry, verse four. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. They seem pretty motivated to try to get Jesus on their side. So they give Jesus some reasons why he should grant this favor to this very powerful man. They say he's a very good man. Uh, He has helped us out. He helped us build our house of worship, our synagogue. 
Uh, Even more than that, he's commendable for loving the people under his charge. He loves the nation. Uh, For someone who is a foreigner among them, that would be a big deal, pretty rare for a Roman soldier. They sum it up with a particular phrase, though. Did you catch it? He is worthy for you to do this for them. Um, Immediately, alarm bells should be going off in your head if you heard Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Plain. Remember, one of the things that Jesus challenged us as citizens of heaven is not just to do good to those who can do good back to us. Think of the argument that is being presented here right after the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus, uh, would you scratch this guy's back? After all, he scratched our back just a little while ago. Uh, Jesus, here's a man worthy of your help. After all, he helped us. Would you do good for this guy? Because he did good for us. And he can keep doing good for us is the implication. Uh, But that's not the way citizens of heaven are to operate. And that's not the way Jesus operates. And surprisingly enough, it's not the way the centurion views himself. I think this is the real shock of the story. Look in uh, verse 6, what happens next? Jesus agrees to go with the elders, but as he's on his way, they send out another delegation. Jesus went with them when they were not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. We'll stop there. We'll come back to the rest of what he sent in a second. Uh, While the elders of the Jews want Jesus to do this favor for a man they deem worthy, that man views himself as unworthy before the surpassing worth of what he knows of Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly how the centurion had heard about Jesus or exactly how much he understood. Uh, At this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is clearly growing in popularity as both a teacher and a miracle worker. Surely he must have heard of the way that Jesus had healed others. And yet we can say for certain, this is an incredible amount of humility from someone you would not expect it from. You realize that humility is in fact the first step of drawing close to God through faith. It's been said that it's impossible to stand proudly before God because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. None of us has a reason to boast before God if we rightly understand what it is that God measures the worth of a person through, the standard of the very value of Christ himself. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is one of the biggest misunderstandings people have about Christianity. They think that God operates on a merit mindset when it comes to how he evaluates us. That if we could just live good enough lives, avoid doing the bad things, be proactive in doing the good things, uh, that God would surely love us and accept us into his heaven one day after we die. But that couldn't be further from the truth. According to the Bible, if if God were to operate on a merit mindset, then each and every one of us would be shown to be wanting. Uh, We are sinners through and through. We've all rejected his will. And again and again, we have shown ourselves to be his enemy. If God were to give us what we deserve from him, it would be immediate and final punishment. The worst of all news, the wrath of God for all eternity. 
But the good news is that while God doesn't treat us according to our own merit, he can treat us according to the merit of another, the one of surpassing worth himself, the man named Jesus. Uh, Jesus lived a perfect life. Even though he had no sin of his own, he walked and talked as one of us and then willingly gave up his meritous life as a substitute to fully absorb the penalty that our sins deserve so that he could also give us his perfect record of righteousness. On the cross, Jesus was punished. In the resurrection, God confirmed that his sacrifice was accepted and his perfect righteousness could be given to us as a gift. Uh, that's the message of Christianity. Uh, not that you could ever be worthwhile enough to God by your good works to be accepted, but that you could receive the one who was worthy, Jesus himself. If you've never done that, this morning could be the day where you know for sure that if you were to meet God, he would welcome you into his heaven. But you need to draw close to him through his son, Jesus. And friend, the first step to that is humility. Acknowledging that you're a sinner and that you will never live up to God's standards. Now, that lesson of humility is the start of the journey that one day leads us to God through Jesus. But for those of us here this morning that are Christians, let's realize that it's also the way we continue in our walk of faith through this world with Jesus. Kids, I want you to hear this part of the sermon. Uh, there are areas of your life where you can earn things. If you're in school, if you study hard enough and you do well on the test, you'll get a good grade. Uh, maybe your parents have promised you if you obey well enough, you'll even get some sort of reward you're looking forward to. Please understand this though. That's not the way your relationship with God works. You don't earn God's love or his forgiveness. It has to be given to you like a gift. Like the way someone who just walks up to you and just because they love you, they just give you something you did nothing to earn. Uh, Christians have the real tendency to operate on a merit mindset instead of a mercy mindset. Uh, for all of us here that are Christians, recognize this is present in your heart. You could very easily slip into it, even this week. Uh, you can start to subtly believe that if you just obeyed well enough, if you were just a little more diligent in your prayers, if you were just a little more fervent in your evangelism, if you just gave a little bit more of your money away, then God would love you more and your life would go better. You'd be on the inside track with God. But the very way that you were saved is the way you continue to find worth in God's eyes. And that is through the merit of Jesus. Uh, God didn't give you what you deserved. He gave you mercy. And he gave you the perfect record of Jesus' righteousness. And that means even when you're struggling with sin, even when you've had a bad week or you've messed up, God does not love you one ounce less than he did the day before. Uh, your relationship with God is wholly dependent on what you have in Jesus. Now, that also means that you have no reason to boast whatsoever. Or have you had victory in sin this week? Have you found yourself more able to carry out Jesus' commands? That doesn't mean you're better than any other Christian. It doesn't mean that you need to pat yourself on the back. Wow, great job. Now, that's Christ in you. It's another gift of his grace. Uh, remind ourselves 
we need to remind ourselves that we're not to evaluate ourselves on the basis of merit, but on the mercy of God that's ours in Jesus Christ. I, I love that song we sang a little while ago, uh, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. It has this line, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Uh, humility can make a huge difference. Uh, back 77 years ago in two days, uh, the world changed in one photograph. Um, in that photograph were two men. Uh, one was the Supreme Allied Commander, General Douglas, uh, Commander Douglas MacArthur. The other man was the unquestioned em uh, leader of Japan, Emperor Hiri Hirohito. The context of the picture is what makes it important. Uh, you see, Japan had, at this point, been so defeated militarily that continued fighting against the Allies only would result in destruction of the, company, of the country and millions of people dying. But there was one problem. Emperor Hirohito was thought of as a living god. And living gods don't lose battles, which means you can't surrender if you're serving them. So Hirohito realized he had to do something. In order to save his people, he had to humble himself. So he did something that was never done before. He allowed himself to be photographed next to a foreigner. And in fact, a six foot plus foreigner, which made his five foot something frame look awfully diminutive. And in the, as a result of his humility, the Japanese people accepted the surrender and millions were saved. What hangs in the balance for us is not the fate of a nation, but the state of our souls and our relationship with God. The first step of faith is humility, to admit that we aren't worthy, but Jesus is. Now that needs to be matched with something else, and that's what brings us to our second point this morning. Not only humility, but we also have to have faith in his authority. So seven through 10, we see faith in Jesus trusts his authority. Faith in Jesus trusts his authority. You can notice when authority is lacking, usually pretty easily. I was a youth pastor back in the day, um, particularly of seventh and eighth graders, uh, which mean, uh, means I learned the value of keeping the chaos under control with the authoritative youth pastor voice. Um, and one particular time I had delegated the job of running the youth group games to one of the guys I'd been mentoring, who frankly was not the boldest, uh, most imposing of figures. He's very soft-spoken. So I knew he needed a little help with the vocal authority piece. So I gave him a megaphone, thinking that will amplify his voice and his authority. Uh, unfortunately, this dear brother was not familiar with the way a megaphone works. Um, so he had the kids in a circle, and he was going to speak to them to tell them the rules of the game with that megaphone. Only the megaphone, it projects out like in a cone in front of you. And he was in the middle of the circle. And so he's talking into the megaphone to one side of the circle while the people on the sides aren't hearing him. And after a little while, he picks up on it. And so instead of rearranging the kids, he starts rotating as he talks 
resulting in the circle each getting half of what he said and no one knowing what to do. Uh, as you can imagine, 80, 90 junior hires or so, not knowing what to do in a game, it went off rails almost immediately. Um, I was enjoying myself so much that I hadn't quite intervened yet. But uh, someone who was a local uh, middle school teacher, uh, his dear sister popped up and got everyone in line, like, you over here, you over here, and boom, the game was back on target. You know, it, good authority is not a bad thing. In fact, when you have the absence of good authority, it's very noticeable. One of the most essential parts of your faith is recognizing the good authority that God has over you, over you that is exercised through the words of Jesus given to us. Uh, the centurion learned this lesson. Uh, he understood it, authority was important, and Jesus had plenty of it. And all it took was him to say, make it so, and it would be done. Uh, let's keep reading in verse 7. He's explaining to Jesus why he won't even accept him into his home. He says, uh, therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Uh, he thinks that Jesus doesn't need to even come inside to heal this man. He just needs to give a command. And the authoritative word of Jesus will do the work for him. And he gives an illustration for why. For, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Uh, see, the Roman soldier with charge of 100 people is very familiar the way commands and authority work. If he were out on a ride with his horse and his soldiers and he came across some door that needed to be opened, he wouldn't get off his horse to do it. He would say to one of his men, open that door and the door would be opened. If there was someone that needed finding, he wouldn't go chasing them down. He would say to his men, go get that person and they would go get him because that's the way authority works. His authority didn't come from himself. It went all the way back up to Caesar. And yet it was so true that even a word of his would cause something to happen. Uh, his logic was, that as great as my authority is, it must be nothing compared to the authority Jesus has. So if I can make things ha happen just by my word, what must Jesus be able to do with his words? Now, that's astonishing faith. To find faith like that in a Gentile soldier, someone you would assume would know nothing about God, it shows an incredible amount of insight. Uh, you can see that's the case by the way Jesus responds in verse 9. Uh, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Uh, there's only one other place in Scripture where we're told that Jesus marveled at something. In that case, he was surprised by the lack of faith he found in the towns of Judea. He marveled at their unbelief. But in this case, he marvels at the reality of the faith of a man that no one would have expected to understand anything of God and how he understands intuitively the authority Jesus possesses. And then Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And that comment is, I think, supposed to clue us in on what's going on here. That even as Jesus is commending the faith of this Roman centurion, 
he is also expressing grave disappointment and even shame in the covenant community and the way they are responding to him. Uh, Remember back months ago, if you're with us while we were studying back in Luke chapter 4, the first sermon that Luke records for us, Jesus preaching, was in his hometown of Nazareth. Um, At one level, you might say it didn't go well, not because of what Jesus said was faulty, but because the people didn't want to receive what he was revealing about himself. Uh, Flip back with me, Luke chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. Uh, it's at the point where they're already revealing that they are rejecting the, what Jesus is claiming about himself. And so Jesus starts rebuking them, and he does so using two Old Testament examples. I'll, I'll read the verses, Luke 4, 25 to 27. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all, uh, over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So two examples. Uh, One, a Gentile widow. Um, There's miraculous provision in that story. There's also uh, a son that dies that's Resurrected? We'll come to that next week. This week, though, focusing on that second one, the story of Naaman. Who was Naaman? Well, he was a Gentile, a Syrian. Um, he was a general, a military man with authority. Uh, he had a problem, someone who is seriously sick, uh, this time not a slave, but Naaman himself. But in his case, a slave, an Israelite girl, told him, of an authoritative prophet, Elijah, in the land of Israel that might just be able to heal him if he go and humble himself. So Naaman went, and he learned a very hard lesson in humility. He had to go wash in a stinky river, even though it seemed like a totally fruitless thing to do. But once he got over himself, and once he put his trust in the authoritative prophet, His flesh was restored and he got his healing. Sound familiar? I think Luke is very intentionally retracing the steps and these real events that happened with Jesus to show us the authoritative prophet Jesus speaking words with the very authority of God. Like one of the prophets of old that's been resurrected among us. Uh, Jesus has the authority, yes, to heal. More authority even than the Roman soldiers in charge of the area. Uh, Jesus has the very authority of God as the son of God. And he need only to say a word for things to happen. Implicit in that is both the commending of the faith of this Gentile who gets it and the rebuke of God's people who still are missing who Jesus is. These themes are going to keep coming up in Luke's gospel, so take note of them. Now, all this brings us to the end of the story, verse 10, which is almost like an afterthought. Uh, Jesus performs the healing without going inside the house, just like the centurion said he could. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus has the power with just a word 
to heal a seriously sick slave on the point of death and bring him back to health. But, but that's not even the main point. The main point is the humble faith of the centurion that understands that Jesus is someone to trust and bow before, which leaves us with the question, what will we do with his authority ourselves? Uh, will we trust the authoritative words of Jesus? Or will we, will we put our trust in our own authority to live our own lives? You know, there is a choice each of us makes. How are we going to view the authority of Jesus? Uh, we can, it's one thing to believe that he has the authority from God. But it's another thing to trust it. To be willing to obey him because you believe he's actually out for your good. That his commands are in line with what's best for you. I was listening to a podcast this week and there was a high-ranking military official explaining the way our military thinks of leadership. So there's two ways that you can motivate obedience on your subordinates. Uh, one, you can lead with fear. That is, you make the consequences of disobeying you so high that no one will cross you. That will lead to a sword of authority with your soldiers. But it only goes so far. Far more powerful is to lead with trust and even love. Uh, a commander whose soldiers know that he cares for them, that he is competent, but he's also filled with compassion for them, those men, they'll let him exercise authority even when it means going to the ends of the earth. Uh, when you think of Jesus, uh, as a believer in Jesus, you are right to recognize he has authority over your life. But don't think of it like the authority of a tyrant. He's not someone that's just out to kill all your fun and make your life miserable and get what he wants. Now recognize he's already revealed his heart to you. He's already showed you what his character is like. Uh, he spoke a word of his authority when he finished his work upon the cross saying, it is finished. Guaranteeing that you will never again bear the weight of your sins. Uh, he spoke another word before his father to, to ensure that you are forever welcomed into your, his presence, that you are an adopted son and daughter. Uh, he is, will one day speak another word uh, on the day of judgment, clearing you of the entire life you had lived and forever justifying you before God. And one day you'll hear him speak a final word to defeat all of the enemies and those who have done you wrong. Uh, Jesus has shown that you can trust him and what he's done and what he's promised to do. And that means when it's time for you to put his words into practice, it says someone who trusts his authority and isn't crushed by it. Uh, think of the way this plays out in the decisions you make. Uh, uh, maybe you can think about your career. Maybe you worked your whole adult life to get to a certain spot in your profession. And suddenly a promotion is offered to you to get to the spot you wanted all along. Do you just jump and accept that position? Or, or do you stop and consider what the authority of Jesus has over your life might have to say for this moment? Would Jesus have you consider where your family might have to move to? Is there, is there a solid church there for you to fellowship with and for your family to thrive? 
Or have you considered what it'll do for your opportunities to be able to serve or, or even evangelize? Is there something that he's put in your life related to the way you're serving him where you are that will be lost? Now, does it mean that for sure you don't take that promotion? But it certainly means you pray and you consider what his authority over your life has to say about that important decision. Or parents, what, what about the after-school activities? Sports is a big one. Uh, you know, the sports look great on the uh, resume to get into college. Uh, they build bone density, make your kids happier and more productive, teach them teamwork, develop skills, all sorts of good things. But before you sign them up for another sport, stop and ask yourself, what is the authority of Jesus in our family have to say about this decision? Is there going to be room for the type of discipleship that Jesus is calling us to? Are they going to see what the priorities of a Christian should be? Or are they unintentionally going to get the message that there's some other agenda and a priority in life? Let's lower the stakes a little bit in the area of our comfort. You know, before the pandemic, um, there were plenty of things that were hard about being a Christian. Uh, one particular difficulty our church didn't have was no one was tempted to stay home and stream from home on their couch with their coffee in hand uh, just because it's more convenient. Uh, there's a reason for that. Um, it's because we didn't have a live stream before the pandemic. <laughs> so you wouldn't be here if you thought that that's what you wanted to do. Um, and I'm very thankful we were able to provide that. Um, I know there's some people that still are unable to be back physically. That's a real thing. And very thankful the technology, the way that keeps them connected to us. But for all the rest of us, realize that there is a real temptation of a comfortable chair, our favorite coffee mug, and the comfort and ease of not having to deal with anybody as we worship God by ourselves in our living room. But if we live under the authority of Jesus, uh, might even our instincts toward comfort need to be corrected by what his word toward us tells us is best for us. That we need fellowship, that we need to encourage others and be encouraged by them. And that we need to not make it a practice to avoid assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. See, there's no area of our life that is not under the authoritative word of Jesus. Uh, the question, my dear brothers and sisters, is whether you will trust that authority or whether you will bristle underneath it. Jesus is a good king. Uh, he never gives you commands designed to harm you or to get what he wants at your expense. Every command in his word to you is there for your good and his eternal glory. And so even when it doesn't feel like it, would you trust his good authority over your life? Would you be humble enough to bow your knee to his will knowing that he is a good king worth trusting. I'm so encouraged by the way I see our church doing this again and again. Not easy steps, but faithful ones. Uh, steps of humility. Uh, steps that demonstrate we trust his authority. Steps that we wouldn't take if we didn't believe that Jesus is our good king and his words are worth living by. I was so encouraged by this last congregational meeting 
Uh, we had a series of testimonies we heard, uh, 14 new members that were voted in. Praise God for that. Um, and in those was such a range of different ways that people have heard the call to follow Jesus and have been obedient to it. Uh, people who came to Christ at a very early age, and as long as they can remember, they've been following Jesus with his help. Uh, some people that came to Christ as adults and had to learn what it means to be a Christian after they were already calling the shots in their own life. Uh, there's one common theme throughout all of them, though. None of them earned it. And all of them are markers of the good rule of Jesus in our lives. Brothers and sisters, you know that Jesus is worth trusting. He's never let you down up until now, and he never will. Would you humble yourself before him? And would you gladly submit to his will? He's the one who healed your soul. And he's the one that can fill it even today with what you need to remain faithful to the end. None of us are worthy. And none of us can provide what we need for ourselves. What we need is Jesus and more of him. And in a moment, we're going to sing a song to just that effect singing together, Lord, I need you every hour. Would you remind yourself that Jesus is worth your trust and he is worth your humility. Let's prepare our hearts to sing as we pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your goodwill in our lives, that we can trust your word to us even when it runs against our instincts. Thank you for not withholding from us all the things needed for us to be saved and to be brought into your forever family and to give us your perfect and uh, glorious inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Uh, Jesus, as we now turn to you in song, uh, would you fill our hearts in joy as we live out your words in obedience that we would confess that you are what we truly need now and every hour to come. Jesus, help us to sing in a way befitting of you. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.